Let's take our Bibles and turn once again to the Gospel according to Luke in the same chapter we read from this morning, Luke chapter 24. We'll pick up reading where we left off at verse 13 through verse 35, in which is recorded Jesus' visit to two who were traveling that same resurrection day to a village called Emmaus. Luke 24, verse 13, hear the word of God. Now behold, two of them, two of the disciples, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us? while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As far we read this account of the visit of Jesus to two Emmaus travelers. 
Jesus is risen. This is the story of the gospel, the true story recorded in Holy Writ, known and believed by God's people. Jesus is risen from the dead. Having been crucified on Good Friday, Sunday is excellent Sunday. Jesus rises from the dead, sealing the very fact that God approved of his atonement for sins. Jesus is risen, and he lives, and he ever lives. And he ever lives not as some great theologian in some ivory tower in heaven itself, but as the Savior still ever living to make intercession for us and to work all things for our salvation. And what he does, this Jesus, is profound and elaborate and abundant, his mercy to us for whom he's risen. He sends, for example, angels, and he did that first day to the women, to increase their faith. And as we read in this text, he makes a personal appearance to two very confused Emmaus travelers to increase their understanding, and to return them to joy. We want to consider this personal appearance of Jesus to Emmaus travelers as we learn how Jesus unconfuses these people and restores them to joy in him. He draws nigh to two on the road to Emmaus. It is the Sunday afternoon of his First Sunday alive from the dead, and they're traveling to this place called Emmaus. But some have said, and I agree with them, that this narrative of two traveling there to Emmaus and then 20 centuries ago is really a story of the journey of every Christian. We're all journeying, and we're all journeying, and in a way, the journey commences with Jesus rising from the dead and our given faith to participate in the glories of his resurrection. We're on this journey. And it's striking here how this is recorded in Holy Writ as a kind of biography of us all who are pilgrims and strangers. And it addresses us in our disappointments and discouragements and in the temptations to doubt that we have in our sadness and in our grief and to work faith in us. And so, would you join me on the journey of these men as Jesus visits them, and would we not want to believe that Jesus also visits us now on our journey to wherever we're going and ultimately to heaven? So let's consider that these ones who are on their journey are rather slow to believe, slow of heart to believe, Jesus says in rebuke of them. And let's consider that they were really wandering in this time of their life, going away from Jerusalem and very confused and theologically inept. Let's consider then Jesus' visit to them, of course, and how he turned things around and then the result of that. And I'm sure that we will be happy to hear how that resulted For them, those two travelers, because that's the result of Jesus' visits with us on our journeys, too. So, let's consider truth to travelers. And first, we consider this, 
these journeymen, as we would call them. One's named Cleopas, the other we don't know. I've always assumed that they were men, but as I read, there's no indication that they both were men. It could have been a husband and a wife. Some surmise that. Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas, let's call it that. So that they were going and they showed hospitality, maybe at their home in Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they would do this as a husband and wife can do, but they might have been two men. I'll probably be saying to you all the time here, there, there's two men here. And what are they doing? We don't know. We know they're going away from Jerusalem. We know they're very frustrated and visibly sad. Jesus says to them, what are you talking about and why are you sad? He sees it. He's, of course, the one with great and unlimited discernment, but I wonder if we ourselves could see it. They themselves knew it. We know when we're sad, when we're in a funk, when we're not right and something's not right about how we're receiving life's heartaches, maybe, or whatever. We're not satisfied. But these ones had been among the disciples, and for however long, we don't know. They weren't of the eleven. For as we read, when they went back, they returned to the eleven, minus Judas, eleven disciples. They returned to them, but they had been among them, and so they knew them, and they were very close to them, and they had learned the same things from Jesus. And they had even been there when the women came from the tomb, having heard the angel's message and seen the empty tomb. So they had a bunch of preaching and a bunch of teaching, but they weren't getting it. And since Jesus died and they figured he was still somewhere, somebody took his body, who knows, they're getting away from everything. They're taking a break. Maybe Emmaus was their home. But there they are that Sunday afternoon, strolling, walking, maybe shuffling their sad feet in the shuffle of the sad. They didn't get it, and Jesus rebukes him just for this. They didn't get the theology of the whole history. They knew the history, that is part of it. They knew that he died, but they thought that was the end of it. His story was over. He's now going the way of all flesh somewhere. Certainly there's no such thing as resurrection. They were in unbelief. They weren't getting what Jesus said they had to get, that Jesus must suffer and die, as all the law, the Psalms, and the prophets taught, and as Jesus taught. That he would effect a spiritual redemption from sin, they were clueless about that. They even say to Jesus, we had hoped that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And they had in mind a political deliverance, from Caesar, from the bondage that they were feeling of Roman rule. So they had all these basic things wrong so that it is striking. Their hope in Jesus is no more. They even say, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. They didn't have any hope anymore. Their belief in Jesus was also 
in belief of him now only as a prophet, mighty in word and deed, they say, before God even, and the people, but only a prophet, not the Messiah that Peter had confessed and we assume the disciples were believing Jesus was. Couldn't be the Messiah. Messiah couldn't be crucified and then just die. And where's the deliverance of Messiah that we know Messiah is going to affect? So they're missing some basic things. And they speak of Jesus being delivered by the Jewish authorities and condemned to death and crucified. And they speak of the fact that Jesus was a prophet, no longer is a prophet. And they don't recognize that Jesus lives at all. There's a, there's a theological Christological, soteriological, whatever logical you can get, mistake in these people's perceptions of the worst kind. The women were gently rebuked and greatly revealed to that they were all wrong for seeking the living one among the dead. Well, the same kind of error that the women are accused of having, so did these poor disciples on the road to Emmaus in their theological confusion. They weren't believing in the living God revealed in Jesus. Their God was dead. They could have written the New York Times and said God is dead, like they do around in America and have. There's no true Jesus here. They're thinking of what dastardly men did to their wonderful prophet. They're not thinking of the divine hand in this all. And the result, well, they have a heart problem. Their minds are not right. They're not biblically transformed by these events and by the word of God itself interpreting the events. They have a heart problem, and their hearts have to burn within as Jesus later is used in converting them. But they also have a, a life problem. It's always the case, you realize. If your heart, perhaps tonight, is not right with God, you've got a life problem because the Bible says that out of the heart are the issues of life, the goings forth of life. And so they had this problem, this life problem, and Striking, I believe that they're traveling away from Jerusalem and the apostles was part of their life problem. They just left. They had been with the apostles through thick and thin, maybe. The apostles leading the way, being the official representatives of Jesus, and they had been the hangers-on. They had been the ones who were going along with this, and I believe they truly believed, but now they're, they've had it. They've had it. The cross is too much for them. The cross is a stumbling block to them. The curse of God that it represented, too much impossible. So they've got to clear their heads. But the further they go away, the further they talk among themselves and are prayerfully committed to a conversation with God, the further they're departing, departing in their hearts and in their minds from the truth. And that's why they're sad. They're sad. They are glum. They leave 
veritably the church of Jesus Christ, the apostolic church. It's never good, beloved, to leave the apostles. They left them. And they went. Maybe they'd go from church to church and to no church and so on, as, as so many do today. And that's what I want to leave us with in the conclusion of this first point. This world, beloved, is full of badness and madness and sadness. We can trace it right back to a story like the story of the travelers to Emmaus. If you're theologically confused or completely sans theology, which means without it, you don't have any theology, You're going to have a life problem because you have a heart problem and you're going to be sad and you're going to be wandering, but always away from the apostolic truth. Always. Doesn't matter if you go to Emmaus or you go to Grand Rapids or you go to San Francisco or you go to Long Island, New York. You're going away from the apostolic truth. If your journey's taking you away from there, and let's put it this way, from the true church of Jesus Christ, it's not a good direction. Never, never is. And it's part of the badness and part of the madness and part of the sadness of this world. You're looking for something more or different than Jesus. Not believing the significance of his death, the finality of his atonement, and the seal of God approving the work of his son, establishing the blood of the new covenant. And there's exactly no comfort in this. Do you realize that, poor sinner? There's no comfort outside of Jesus. What's our confession? What's our only comfort in life and in death? That I'm my own man? That I can go wherever I want? That I can go to the bars and listen to this and listen to that and cavort with whom I want to cavort? That's not comforting. But we confess our only comfort in life and in death is not that we're independent, But we're in Jesus and we belong to Jesus, body and soul, now and forever. And wherever we go, our comfort and our joy is serving him. Sad world, bad world, mad world, sad and gloomy, gloomy world. Without the truth of Jesus, without believing him, without knowing the power of his endless life and of the truth of the blessedness of Christians, which is that God makes us to be living ones, we're sad people. And sadly, we ourselves have that problem. This isn't just an us and a them thing, as we said this morning. We're just like the women 
just like the Emmaus travelers or just like those who are prone to wander away from God and truth and go our own direction. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear God through me? It's easy to make the wrong choices because we're just traveling with blinders, maybe. We got this goal and it's all carnal. It's this girl, it's this guy, it's this thing, it's this job, it's this thing that is illicit. We shouldn't have it. And those take us away from God and truth. No wonder we're sad. No wonder we're fickle. No wonder when successes come, we just take them uh, to the bank. And that's all we're concerned about. We got this bank account that's, that's accruing. And when sad things come, we, we just die, as it were. The hardest things and can go on in our own congregation, you realize. There's sadnesses amongst us. There's heartaches. There's trials. I hope you understand it to grieve with the body of Christ that God has given us here. But if we're not just traveling toward heaven but going our own way, if we're just going our own way, we're going to be sad. and We're going to be directionless. And it's going to be bad. And we'll be mad. And sadder yet. Thankfully, Jesus is risen, and when Jesus rises, beloved, it's not to stay aloft and aloof. No, it's to draw near to everyone for whom he dies. And this is what we see in this this wonderful visit of Jesus to the Emmaus travelers. And I just am amazed at all of the wonderful things here for our learning They're talking together, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas, I don't know, two men. And they're traveling and they're talking together. They're disputing, apparently. They're conversing and reasoning. And then, so it was, verse 15, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. We who know the outcome of that say, yes, yes. And it's not the cavalry that's there. It's, it's Calvary that's there. It's Jesus is there. He'll make it right. He draws near. And he goes with them. And striking thing is, their eyes are restrained so they did not know him. And I believe this was Jesus' own doing. Jesus wasn't uh, this ghost Children, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was just Jesus still, in one point of, from one point of view. The man, Jesus, in his human nature was there. He could eat and drink. He could talk and so on. Oh, to be sure, there's a gloriousness of his resurrection even before heaven. He could go through doors. He could travel great distances in, in like a flash. And the seven miles to Emmaus was no problem to him. And it wasn't because he had these long-distance genes. He was God in the flesh and God, the living one, now doing what he wants and when he wants and making these journeys to visit whom he will 
in his appearances. But this one, he restrains those Emmaus travelers from seeing. Their eyes were restrained. They're passive. It's not that Jesus is unrecognizable. They recognize him later when he takes off the blinders. But right now, he wants them to continue talking, and he will elicit from them their own ignorance, but the truth of himself. So he says to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And you find here holy irony. They're wondering if Jesus is so strange to the things that had happened that he doesn't know how could he be that way. And Jesus, if anyone, knows what had happened. But he, he won't let on. Not only that he knows, but that he is the one these things happened to. He's giving them lessons, and he is going to give them the lessons they need. So he rebukes them after they tell him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. They have that in their mind. They're not talking about the weather. And they say to him, he was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and he was condemned and so on. And we had been hoping he was going to redeem Israel. Certain women appeared and they, they indicated that he wasn't here, and some had said he's alive, and, and they, they leave anyway. They're just trying to figure it out and all this. And then Jesus says at that time, O foolish ones, O fools, King James has, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into glory? That is, ought it not to have been, according to the Bible itself, that first suffering, then glory? Ought you not to understand that suffering is a part of the plan of the Messiah and of God himself who sends Messiah? And so Jesus, beginning at Moses and the prophets, expounds all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is amazing. They were theologically illiterate almost. They knew the Bible without Jesus. Is that maybe you? Is that even maybe the preacher? We know the Bible, and we can know a lot of the facts, but without Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, and the main message is suffering and the glory that should follow. Wow. Jesus teaches the basic theology, the basic truth of the entire word of God and of all of his existence, that he comes as the man of sorrows and he rises as the king of glory. And God, in his wonderful decree, has said it must be so. You see that? Ought not Jesus to have suffered these things? The women were told by the angel, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And Jesus would say in Luke 22, the Son of Man goes as it was determined of him. There's this divine necessity 
a sovereignty of a sovereign God that is absolute behind the suffering, behind the resurrection. The holiness of God requires it also. The sinfulness of man requires it. The justice of God that will be satisfied only in the way of mercy and justice meeting on the cross. All of these explain the oughtness of the suffering and then the glory. But it comes down to and goes back to God always. God's the reason why there's this way. It's very high. Very deep. And the prophets knew it. First Peter 1 says that the prophets, Jesus testified in the prophets the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. But can you imagine the great exposition that Jesus now gave of the Bible. Every single minister on the face of the planet would like to have been there. We could have sermon material till the kingdom come. Jesus expounding the scriptures concerning himself. That's the prayer of every single minister and it should be the prayer of every single father and husband and every single believer that we would have the light of Jesus himself expounding the scriptures and giving us the spirit to expound the scriptures so we find Jesus. Men who lead households, God's people, all of you who have your devotions, remember and make a point of finding Jesus in your Bible passage, or you haven't found enough. Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' returning glory, this is the theme. These are the things you have to follow. Or you have a bunch of trees and no forest, or you have a bunch of threads and no theme. You see, Jesus is speaking here of the unity of the Bible there's an amazing thing he's teaching here. You see, he expounds what the people have. And we have this Bible, the miracle book of the revelation of God. So Genesis 3, that's Moses, the promise of the son who would, whose heel would be bruised, the seed of the woman, but who would crush the head of the devil. Genesis 17, the seed of Abraham. Genesis 22, he's the, the ram caught in the thicket in the place of Isaac. Genesis 49, he's Jacob's prophecy of the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one who's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You can imagine Jesus saying this. You wonder how long the sermon was? I'll just say this. It might have been even longer than mine. And you would have said, fine with me. That great. Jesus' words will hang on, and we want to hear him, whatever he has to say. Beautiful. He's the voice of God in the burning bush, the word of God. He's every Passover lamb there ever was that was slain in the typological Israel. He's all of those bulls and goats and his blood is all of those 
that blood of the bulls and goats that were types of his blood. Every prophet and priest and king, Jesus is all of the good ones together and ultimately the only prophet, priest, and king. He's the one of Daniel who would be cut off, but not for himself, who makes atonement for sins. He's Zechariah's one on whom the people would look because they've pierced him and they would mourn. He's Malachi's messenger of the covenant. He's the wisdom of Proverbs. He's the lover of Song of Solomon. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the Messiah on the cross prophesied in Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. And he's the good shepherd of the word of God in Psalm 23. Isaiah 52, oh, 53, beautiful exposition of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. You realize that, beloved? This is the outstanding Mount Everest of prophecy of the sufferings of Jesus and the glory that should follow. And so penetrating is this text and so convincing that even the Jews, they recognize that there's too much similarity here to Jesus whom they crucified. And so for centuries, I believe, and I'm told, the Jews forbade the reading of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 lest there be converts to that Christian heresy, as they called it, turning from dead idols to Jesus, the living one. And so, Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than men, his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. That is, here's a suffering one. We don't desire his form. He's not this princely sort of guy, but his suffering is for blessing And then Isaiah 53, who's believed our report, and there's the suffering of Jesus. And at the end, he's divided a portion with the great and with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is what Jesus, something of what Jesus was talking about. And the... Disciples on the road to Emmaus, no doubt Jews, would have understood some of this, but not all of it, and not the Jesus of it, until now. But then Jesus tarries with them at their request and insistence, and he blesses them, and he who is the one to whom hospitality showed becomes the host. And he blesses them and breaks the bread. Sounds like his institution of the sacrament all over again. Surely it was a holy meal, but then he vanishes. Well, beloved, here comes the Son to us today. Amazing. These men on the road to Emmaus, if there were two men, 
They're visited by the Son of God. They're wondering, they're wondering, and they're wondering what they're wondering about and what was Jerusalem all about in these last events of the days of this prophet that they thought now was deceased. And Jesus' visit with them turned everything around. They're lost and they're traveling a wrong way. Jesus makes the difference. And he speaks to them of himself and of himself revealed in this Bible that they had, that they knew, oftentimes by heart. Here's a lesson for us in how Jesus comes to us today. What's first of all that Jesus comes to us today He draws near. It's not that we draw near to him. We are reformed, meaning we believe in the sovereignty of God in everything and in our salvation. He comes to us. This is a grace visit. We're wandering however far away from the truth we are and Jesus we are. He finds those for whom he died. And if we're traveling in a terribly wrong way, He'll come alongside of us, will Jesus, and don't you know that? Hasn't Jesus yanked you out of a bar or off of the internet or away from a relationship or some other thing that you were doing? Hasn't Jesus yanked you from your thoughts that were perverse or narrow-minded, only showing your prejudice and your hate, and not your quest for truth, and to love people. He speaks to us from the Scriptures. He comes to us. He speaks to us from the Scriptures. Comforts our wandering, weary, needy traveler hearts. And he does this often, beloved, in our suffering. You know that? You want to know, well, how's Jesus? How's he visit me today? And you're looking maybe for an angel. You're looking for some, some great experience. Well, it's in all of the experiences of life, or it's in not one. It's in all of the ordinary experiences of life, or it's in not one. It's especially in the sufferings of life. That's just the way it is. We need sufferings. We need sufferings for Jesus' sake. We need sufferings for Jesus' sakes, which simply come because we have chosen the way of the cross. And we have chosen not to depart from truth and holiness. We're not going to do that no matter what everybody else says. We're not going to go on that way that seems wide and fun and like a carnival ship. We're on the way of obedience to God, and that's the happy way. But he comes to us in these things, and if we'd only realize it, he's visiting us when we're discomforted by the way we should go or at uh, ill at ease in this suffering, wanting us to talk to him, to tell us our problems, tell him our problems. You know that? He's the great counselor. He's the great pastor. And he visits you in all of your experiences and in your sufferings. And even though you're not much, even though you're Mrs. Cleopas, whose name is never mentioned, These are great people that are visited here. They are you and they are are me. Just ordinary folks. 
traveling. Traveling, we must. Jesus comes that traveling, we will with him. And to sinners, of course, who've messed up and who are theologically inept or think we are theologically better than others, and so we become these self-justifiers. And he comes with that Bible that alone is power to make us wise into salvation and to instruct us in doctrine and to rebuke us. Jesus, you see, it's almost like he's coming as the walking Bible living word. All scripture is able to make you wise into salvation. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. All scripture is profitable for teaching. He does it. He rebukes. He corrects. That there might be this amazing result. Final point. There are seven things that happen to these men, and I think these travelers, and I think are meant for us to Take to heart. You see, these are graced people. The travelers to Emmaus have now their hope restored. They turn around. Their faith has worked. Here's what happens to them. First, as Jesus is opening the scriptures, their hearts burn within. That's something? First thing, their hearts burn within. Their heart... It's not heartburn in the bad sense. It's a heart fire, though. It's an amazing fire. Fire of the Holy Ghost before the Holy Ghost is poured out. Fire of life. Fire destroying the dross of unbelief. The misconceptions. Fire which is light for these men on the road to Emmaus and for all God's people. There's fire. Did not our heart burn within us? While he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us, it wasn't a strange fire. It wasn't some enthusiast that they were created to be. Some have this strange fire without the word, but theirs was biblical fire to enlighten the mind and to make the hot burning coals that are necessary for further growth. Second, the result of Jesus speaking to them and their hearts burning within is that they longed to keep company with Jesus even before they knew it was Jesus. They knew there was something about this one. They had it in their gut that there was someone who's meeting them that they'd, they'd heard before. Uh, something, uh, something there. But this is striking. They, they constrained Jesus who would have gone further And verse 29, they constrained him, saying, Oh, abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And then he went in to stay with him. You see, he had to. I know Jesus could have done anything he wanted, but these men, the verb suggests, were really forcing him to stay. The same verb is used, after all, in another place by Jesus, who says, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. They were being violent with Jesus. They were grabbing him. They they wanted him who had some sense to him, not only, but wisdom. Who had actually expounded the scriptures like they'd never heard before. They were like Jacob holding on to that angel that met with him. They would not let him go until he blessed them. And we need that kind of holy violence, don't we? You ever have that in your prayers? You're desperate for truth and 
the presence of God. And you ever pray, God, I'm not going to let you go till you answer my prayers. I humbly beseech you, assure me of answers to prayer. Make me to pray aright. Grant what I need to be yours and to be on the journey you want for me. Correct me in my waywardness. That's what they're saying here. Third, the scripture is opened to them. It's not just opened, it's open to them. Jesus, the great exegete, applied it to them. And Jesus applies it to us as well. And then there was another resurrection. Interesting. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Here's the resurrection. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They rose up in their spirits. They looked up, they rose up, and they returned that very hour, probably getting on dark, don't you think? And they trudged, no, they ran, they hastened the seven miles back that very hour to Jerusalem and the congregation of the apostles waiting them. Then, fifthly, they witnessed of the gospel of the resurrection of Christ. They are traveling, you see, now, even though it's backwards and they haven't made any earthly progress, they're just going back the way they came, and that's often the Christian life, you know. But Lord, if we go back there, if we, if we say we're sorry there, if we have to backtrack because we said bad, bad things and whatever, and we got to do all of these things, that's not progress. And God says, yes, it is. Because then you're nearer to me. And so they went, and they went that very hour to Jerusalem, and they were on a mission. They had to tell the disciples that they'd been with Jesus. Well, they get there, and the disciples said, that they'd been with Jesus. That is, they'd known that he was risen because some among their, uh, them had seen, he'd appeared to, to Simon, they'd seen the risen Lord, the Lord is risen indeed, they said. Well, so then the apostles say this first, but then they say he also appeared to us, and it was a great communion. That's the sixth thing. They were communing just as we all ought to, beloved, in the Lord, on our journey together. Commune of these things in life and in death, all life's journey. And the seventh thing is, the Lord comes. <laughs> Verse 36, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to, to you, and they're terrified in all of this. They're boasting great words. Somebody saw Jesus. He's risen indeed, and then he comes, and they just wither away. They're so sinful. Jesus is so holy. They're just learning to believe. But he's there, and that's the important thing. And when he says, peace be to you, peace is to them. And they're ready for the journey ahead. That's the way it is today. You believe that? You believe that there's something here of the, the journey of all Christians here? Have you related to this? Can you relate to this? I hope so. There's something about it. 
There's something about this for today's travelers. Risen Savior visits travelers is the news of every day. and ought to be. The sun is risen upon us in our sadness. And he comes to visit us and say, now you come to me. You got some problem? You got you to work it out. We got to talk. And I'm going to listen. And then you listen to me. And it's this amazing thing. Pastor Jesus comes and he, he walks with us. And he expounds the Bible to us. And he breaks bread with us. And we commune with him. So beautiful. This is the Gospel of Resurrection Sunday. We've been through the whole first Sunday just about 20 centuries ago. Shall it not be that we live out of that truth every day this week and until the kingdom comes? The sun is risen, and he will never set. He's for your traveling, beloved, for your traveling. For all the things in all the directions you go in life, it's for your traveling the shortest road to holiness and to happiness and to heaven. Don't be sad. And if you're sad, look to Jesus. Believe in him. Your only comfort and joy in life and in death all along the journey home. Amen. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thanks for teaching us once again that you're with us. Though you've ascended into heaven, you're with us as we engage in the ministry of the gospel, the mission of the ages to be the bearers of the good tidings, those who rejoice in it and who lead the way as examples to our loved ones, and to the lost. God, help us to be on that journey. When we wander and our theology's wrong or our, our whole point of view seems to be meology, we pray, Father, turn us closer to you. May we not seek to outrun you, to travel without you, to go our own way. Lord, hear our prayers. We're just, just sinners in need of your grace, weary on the road in need of your strength, and so of little faith, oh, Lord, help our unbelief and give us hope. Bless us, we pray, this congregation, and we pray, have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.